reading from, from God's Word together. Um, but before we get there, I, I wanted to um, just mention that we are uh, 250 years from 1772. Uh, 2022 is 250 years after 1772. And in 1772, a little-known preacher in a little-known town in England penned words that would in time uh, become the most popular Christian hymn in the English language. Uh, The words he penned began like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. For 250 years, the words of amazing grace have been sung in churches, concert halls, recording studios, plantations, prisons, weddings, funerals. Nearly every place a song is sung, this song has been sung. And as we read God's Word this morning, as we meditate on it, I want to ask us, what did John Newton see that prompted him to write such a song? And what has prompted millions of people, whether young or old, black or white or brown, rich or poor or middle class, to find solidarity with what Newton wrote? What in this hymn is so great and magnificent and yet so common to human experience that it would be sung by so many for so long? And of course, the answer is in the very title of the hymn. Newton was captured by the grace of God for him, right? That's what we heard. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. John Newton was moved by the thought that God wanted to show grace to him. And and that was this common experience of millions since, whether young or old, or black, or white, or brown, or rich, or poor, or middle class. This is the reason why the hymn has been so prolific. And so this morning, we are going to explore the grace of God. And our aim is not to merely understand it intellectually, like, well, just what is it? But to be awed by it, to be amazed by the God who would show grace to us, to you. To me. And so now we'll hear uh, four different texts from the Bible about God's grace. Uh, Pat is going to come and read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This will be our, the main preaching text. We're going to walk through this text together. And it describes what it looks like for someone by God's grace to pass from death to life and just all the benefits that go along with that. And then secondly, uh, Moira will read for us Exodus 34, 4 through 8, where God associates being gracious with his very character and who he is. Third, Claire is going to come and read Psalm 67, 1 through 3 for us, which is a prayer that God would be known for his grace across the earth. And then lastly, Ryan will read for us Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, which describe the the purpose and the lifestyle of someone saved by God's grace. And so as we hear from God's word now, readers, would you come forward? You can use the microphone right here and church, let's hear the word of the Lord. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you are dead in the trespasses and sin 
in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For grace, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Exodus 34, verses 4 to 8. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Psalm 67, verses 1 through 3. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that you may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, and let all the peoples praise you. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip open to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to spend the almost our entire time there, and it's going to really help you to have the text in front of you because we're going to reference different sections of it. Uh, but before we get there, um, before we talk about why God's grace is amazing, uh, we need to make sure that we are clear in our understanding of just what grace is. We just heard four texts, and there are Dozens, if not hundreds more, that use this word. Um, God is merciful and gracious, he says. Um, Ryan said that the grace of God has appeared. Uh, God wants to show off the immeasurable riches of his grace. And what do the biblical authors mean? And what should be in our minds when we read this word, grace? What, what does it mean? It can be one of those religious words that gets thrown around a lot and we're not clear on it. We have to be clear on what this word means. Well, a simple definition of grace is unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited 
favor. So, in other words, grace is the act of giving something good that is not earned by the one receiving it. Grace is a reward that you don't merit. If, if someone has ever given you something and you just think, I, I don't deserve this, what you have just received is grace. Grace is a gift that the giver simply delights to give. Uh, perhaps a, a friend has season tickets to your favorite sports team, and one week they call you up and ask, hey, do you, do you want my tickets this week to the game? You have just been offered grace. You, you could not uh, enter a legal argument or make a case for, hey, those tickets are mine, right? They are not yours. You have not earned them. You have not bought them. They are your friends, but yet they are being given to you freely simply because your friend has had favor on you. And so that's, that's a simple definition of what we mean when we come across the word grace in the Bible. It is unmerited favor. Now, understanding grace this way, I think, also helps us see it across the Bible as a whole. Because if we only superficially read our Bibles, we might think that grace is mostly a New Testament idea. Because we find that word, G-R-A-C-E, or, or the Greek version of it, uh, most often in the letters of the apostles in the New Testament, we don't find that word as much in the Old Testament. But if grace is unmerited favor, well, then the concept is there from cover to cover. Because as early as Genesis chapter 6, so that's only a few pages in to the Bible, we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Similar phrases are used of Abraham in Genesis 18 and Lot in Genesis 19, who also find favor with God. And in these stories, it's, it's not as though Noah and Abraham and Lot are somehow demanding from God what they were owed or making a case, Lord, you owe blessing to me. No, these are uh, pictures of finding favor with God that they did not earn. They have received grace by receiving his favor. And so from the very beginning, God is depicted as a being who loves, delights to freely give his favor. And that's part of God's identity. Slow to anger, abounding in love, gracious. And evidently, God decides to be gracious to many people very often. And so do we see how important it is to have a clear understanding of grace? We must understand grace if we are in any way to understand God. Grace is unmerited favor, and so the grace of God is God's propensity, his natural tendency, his inclination to freely bestow his favor and his blessing upon people as a gift. That's who God is. That's part of his character. He is a giver of unmerited favor. And so with that definition in mind, we're going to now turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to ask the question of what is so amazing about grace? Why is grace so astounding that it would prompt songs that are sung for 250 years? Why did grace prompt John Newton to write 
such a hymn. Now, there are a lot of reasons in these 10 verses that we could give. I counted about a dozen, um, but I'm guessing you all want to have lunch sometime today, and so we're just going to take three. So three reasons, these are three of the biggest reasons in my mind of why God's grace is amazing. The first is this, God's grace brings the dead to life. We first see the word grace in our passage in verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, but God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then there just comes this uh, intrusion, this injection. By grace, you have been saved. It's not a continuation of thought. It's it's as if uh, Paul, as he's writing this, just has to interject. Yes, we're made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so what we see is God, by His grace makes the dead alive. Now, it's clear from the context, if we go back to verse 1, that we aren't talking about physical death. We're not talking about physical death and physical life. Look back at verses 1 and 2 with me, which says, say, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So there are Two reasons why this is not physical death. First, this death is not physical because although we were dead, we still did stuff. Uh, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You see that? So we were dead and yet we were still doing things. We were still walking. This is, uh, you know, the, the best idea I can come to is like close to zombieism. Like we're the walking dead. Um, we are alive and yet dead. But second, we can infer that this is not physical death because of the type of death that is described. It says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Other translations render this phrase, you being dead in your trespasses, in your transgressions and sins. And so what's in view here is not specifically that our trespasses and sins killed us, although sin has killed us spiritually, but rather that our trespasses and sins are the evidence that we are dead. If I say to you, um, Bob was dead in his casket under the earth, no one would take from that statement that the casket killed Bob. What we're saying is that we know Bob is dead because he's, he's in a coffin and he's buried. That's the sense of the language here in verses 1 and 2. We are dead because we trespass and we sin. That's the evidence of our death. So so what kind of death are we talking about? If we're not talking about physical death, what kind of death are we talking about? Well, we're talking about spiritual death. It's a state of deadness to God. Someone spiritually dead cannot see the splendor of God. They do not perceive the rightness of God's ways. To them, when when they read Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good, that's just nothingness. What what does that mean? It's like trying to describe the sweetness of honey to someone who doesn't have any taste buds. How, How would you do that? They cannot imagine God's greatness, His goodness, how wonderful it is to live with Him. 
They are dead to all of this. And so, because they cannot see God as admirable or desirable or pleasant, because they don't have that capacity, they sin. They live concerned with themselves, their own needs and wants instead of consumed with God. They go their own way. They follow their own plans. They pursue their own goals. Their entire happiness is based on themselves and not God. And as a result, think about that. If, if someone lives where, where their entire happiness is just based on themselves, well, what kinds of things will result in that person's life? Pride, anger, perhaps, when they don't get their way, jealousy when someone else has what they want, lying if the truth does not benefit them, lust for things that they themselves desire, even if they are forbidden. And so this is what happens to the spiritually dead. Sin is just the natural result of having no love for God, of not being able to see God as admirable, as desirable. And if we kept reading there, down into verse 3, we find that this spiritual death is the natural state of all humanity. We all have walked in this deadness. We all know what this feels like, whether you are a Christian here today or not. Someone perhaps tells you of God and you just think, I don't get it. I can remember as a kid, I had the benefit of growing up in a Christian home and I remember particularly my grandparents um, talking about the Bible with me, talking about the salvation that Jesus has accomplished. And I just think, you are so out of touch with what is cool and relevant these days. That's spiritual deadness. I had no taste for the truth. They, they were telling me of the most relevant thing imaginable. And it just hit me and bounced off because I was spiritually dead. So all of humanity is subjected to this deadness. And the question is, well, what will God do? I mean, these are the people. People, mankind is the creation which God made to enjoy living with God in harmony with him. And now they are dead to him. And so what will God do with these humans that are full of trespasses and sins against him? Verses 4 and 5 pick up. So look down at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which He loved us. Now here's the language of verse 1. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, did what? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God by His grace, gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead through Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. He existed in history. He was a religious teacher and a miracle worker who spoke repeatedly of His own death and resurrection and that death happened on a Roman cross as part of a rigged trial. And three days afterward, Jesus' tomb was empty. He appeared afterward to many of his followers alive in public settings. Now, the Gospels are public record. 
One such appearance was to more than 500 people at a time. Our passage claims that the cross of Christ was not merely a rigged trial. It claims that the resurrection was not just some fantastic icing on the cake of Christianity that a person can take or leave. Christ died not as a martyr, but as a savior. In his resurrection, God was not only bringing Jesus back to life, he was also bringing spiritually dead people to life. He was giving these people a new capacity to know God rightly and therefore to know life itself. The Apostle Paul, who wrote what we're reading in Ephesians, described it this way to another group of Christians in the city of Corinth. He said, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That, that's spiritual deadness. Can't see it. It's not there. You hear about it, nothing going on. Don't believe it. Has no gravity. Not relevant. And then he goes on. Here's what happened in believers. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, back at the beginning of creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, brothers and sisters, when someone is made alive together with Christ, it's like walking into a dark room and flipping the light switch on. Everything is now visible. God is no longer this shadowy being that has no relevance, you can see him. He is magnificent. He is good. He is majestic. He is holy. He is wise. He is powerful. And he is gracious. And when that happens, everything within you loves this God. There is no imperfection in him. There is no reason to disdain him. He is wholeheartedly desirable. He is everything you were made to know and experience. That's who this God is. This is the spiritual life that Jesus Christ purchased for his people. We see God as a treasure worth selling everything else for. We regret ever straying from him. And we want to stay as close to him as possible. Like John Newton, we were Blind. But now we see. This new life is all of God's grace. It isn't given to people who first clean themselves up. You don't have to wrestle it out of God's hands. I mean, no one was asking for a crucified Messiah. Do you realize that? Not one person had said, Hey God, I know that my sins are, are deserving of death. Would you just send someone else? Like no one even fathomed that plan and he sent Jesus Christ to die on our behalf and to be raised for us to give us new life. This is a blessing that God delights to give even when we were dead in our trespasses. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God loves giving grace. And so this is why so many people down the ages have found grace amazing because they've received new life from God through Jesus Christ. And they've discovered that life with God is more wonderful than anything they could imagine having on their own. 
He gives life to the dead. That's one reason from this passage why grace is amazing. Here's the second. God's grace exalts the condemned. You see, the sin that we were dead in brings with it a serious relational fallout between us and God. The God that we have sinned against, well, He is the epitome of everything good and right. And so by rejecting Him, by living for ourselves instead of Him, we have chose things that are bad and wrong. That's the opposite of choosing everything that's good and right. You're necessarily choosing things that are bad and wrong. And so sinners naturally stand condemned before God because none of us, including God, want to live in a world filled with bad and wrong things. Yes, God created us all, and in this way we are his children, but as verse 3 of our passage says, our sin makes us children of wrath. We are against him. We stand condemned. Now, I don't think there's any lower status that a person can have than to be condemned by an all-good, all-wise God. Because it's not, it's not as though it's, it's possible that he missed something. Um, it's not as though some new evidence may one day come to light that, that puts you in a better state. No, he's seen all the evidence. He knows all the evidence. And it's not possible that he would, well, just let us slide this once. No, God is just, which means he can't let our evil against others go unresolved. That wouldn't be fair to the others that we've sinned against. But also God is patient. And our sin isn't some small mistake that we did one time. Our spiritual deadness is our constant sinning. And so we are repeat offenders. Even though God is patient, repeat offenders use up their second, third, and fourth chances very quickly. And so to be condemned by this God is to be in the lowest of lows. There is no hope. We are like lifelong criminals who have been caught in the act. All the evidence is on the table, and it all points at us. Now with that in mind, try to wrap your head around verse 6. God raised us up with him, meaning Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If we understand what this verse is saying, it is harder, it is hard to imagine a greater role reversal. We have to understand that when Jesus died and rose again for his people, He did much more than give us a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is true that he saved us from hell. Uh, That is one thing that he did. He actually united himself to us. Theologians call this our union with Christ. So that Jesus, the spotless Son of God, and you or any other believer in him, are almost undistinguishable. God looked at Jesus on the cross and saw our sin and gave him the penalty for our condemnation. And here in verse 6, God 
has raised us, given us Jesus' resurrection, and seated us with Jesus. Well, where is Jesus seated? But on a throne. Do you see that? Being raised with Christ is not just about being alive instead of being dead. Jesus' resurrection was a sign that he was accepted by God. Death is the result of God's curse for sin. And when Jesus died and then was raised, it was as if God the Father was saying to his son, My son, I find no fault in you. You are not deserving of death. You will live. And he raised him from the dead. Verse 6 says that if you are a Christian, by grace through faith, you will experience that same resurrection. Not merely life from the dead, but the wholehearted approval of God the Father. Can you imagine God saying to you, you who were once dead in your trespasses of sins, my son, my daughter, because of what Christ has done, I find no fault. No fault. Not just I choose to ignore the things that I see. Not just, well, you did more good than bad, and so we'll count that instead of the bad. No, he says, I find no fault with you. You, because of that, do not deserve to die. Therefore, you will live. That's what it means to be raised with Christ. Raised with Christ. Given Christ's resurrection. Accepted into life as Christ was. We are raised with Christ. But we're also told that God, quote, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So not only does God accept us, promise to bring us back from the death and condemnation that we deserve, but he exalts us to the very place, the very throne in which Christ himself sits on. Your future, Christian, is not to escape hell. Your future, Christian, is to rule the universe with the very authority of the Son of God. I mean, does that blow your mind this morning? That blows my mind. And if you doubt that this is what this verse says, consider Revelation 3.21, where Jesus himself says that whoever conquers by receiving him, by grace, quote, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down on my fa- with my father on his throne. And so the end result for the Christian is not that he gets one of many thrones in heaven. No, 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 no. What's going on is there is one throne. And it belongs to God the Father, the creator of all that is, and he rules perfectly. And because his son has been so um, 
because his son is spotless and has done his will perfectly and gave himself up as a ransom for God's people, he has granted the son to sit on his throne and rule the universe perfectly. And what Jesus says is, as I have sat on my father's throne, you who believe in me, who are joined to me through faith, you will sit with me on this throne. And you will rule perfectly. I mean, this is at the point of unbelievable, right? We will rule from Jesus' throne. When, when Sarah, my wife, and I first got married, uh, we, like uh, every married couple, we had to figure out how we went about combining two households into one. Um, things like, well, does she need to ask me before she takes my car? Um, do we combine our bank accounts in, and, and put all of our money together? And we quickly coined a phrase that we just repeated often in those early months and years. We would just say, well, what's mine is yours. Sometimes we'd turn that around if it was like the last cookie in the package. Well, what's yours is mine. Uh, but the idea is, is the same, right? At the cross, Jesus joined himself to us to such a great degree that everything he has is ours, including his throne. We don't have it in our possession yet. It's almost like we're in a long-distance marriage where the car and the house and the bank account, they're on the other side of the country. We haven't gotten to them yet, but our names are on them. That's what Christ has accomplished. And so today, it's, it's true that we do have some access to that throne, particularly through prayer. We have Christ's ear. We have his heart. He says, ask of me whatever you will. In my name, I will do it. But sitting on that throne is only a few years or perhaps a few decades away. Our name is already there. If you are in Christ, you have been completely pardoned and you have been exalted to where Christ reigns. That is your future. That is your destiny. And nothing can change it. It is sure. Now, one more thing before we leave this section of Scripture. When that day finally comes... When we are united with Christ, when we sit on his throne, we might think, okay, grace is over. It's done everything it was meant to do, but not true. Not true. When that day finally comes, it will not be the end of grace, but just a new beginning of grace. Look at verse 7 in our text. We are raised with Christ and seated with Christ. Why? So that... In the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. So even the heights of what we're being exalted to, <laughs> these very things, they're just the first fruits of God's unmerited favor. Have you ever been favored by someone like that? I mean, he is... I, I reach for words. He is over the moon sounds too colloquial. Out of his mind sounds like he's not self-controlled. But, but somewhere in that range, he just loves his people so much. He showers you with favor. When I realized that 
2022 marked 250 years of people singing Amazing Grace, I thought, wow, that was, that's a long time. But after looking at verse 7, uh, I don't think it's that long. I think we're going to sing a lot longer than 250 years of this grace. It's that amazing. It's that astounding. So God's grace is amazing because it brings the dead to life. It's amazing because it exalts condemned people. Lastly, for this morning, God's grace is amazing because it gives you and me a new purpose in life. Look with me at verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now the prevailing notion in the Western world, in our day and age, is that you are your own person. You are an individual who can do what you want, with who you want, when you want, and be who you want. Now the problem with that whole uh, philosophy of life, the problem with that purpose, is that ultimately everything depends on you. You are your only hope of success, The only place you have to look is inward to your own resources. And if you fail, you have to wrestle with the the fact that it's no one's fault but your own. The more we press into individuality, the less community and support we have. If you are a Christian, God saved you for a wildly different and much better purpose than to be your own person. That is not why you exist. You do not exist for individual expression. You do not exist to execute your own plans or dream your own dreams any longer. Verse 8 says that you were saved by grace through faith. This was not your own doing because faith is not something you do, but rather the act of believing or trusting in someone else to do what you cannot do. This is how saving faith Works. It turns us from trusting in our works to trusting in Jesus' work on our behalf. It banks on Jesus, not on self. Now, why did God save you that way? Why did he save you by grace through faith? God saved you this way because his purpose for you is not to be your own person, but to be his workmanship. Your purpose in life, for now and for eternity, is to be a kind of canvas through which God can execute his grand design in your life. That is why you exist. Now, there are huge, huge benefits that come with being God's workmanship. For one, his designs are far superior to ours. Uh, You know, the the average person, what, we might want to earn a nice living, settle down with a nice spouse, live in a nice neighborhood. God wants to get you ready to rule and reign the universe. I mean, it's like comparing some stick figure sketch on a paper napkin to the original Mona Lisa. Like, which one would you choose, really? 
But not only are God's designs far better, His resources for accomplishing those designs are far greater. And so look again at verse 10, and let's pay attention to the second half of the verse. It says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I trust that we all know the frustration of wanting to do something good that we know we don't have the ability to do. I experience that feeling every time I think about a home project. I just, I don't have it in me to remodel the bathroom. It would be a good thing. I can't do it. Being God's workmanship means that for God's purposes, we never have to be frustrated by that feeling again. Because we have all of God's resources at our disposal. And so the good works of love and obedience, all those, those things we heard Ryan read from Titus 2, this long list of, of good, holy calling, things that we are called to in God through Christ Jesus, all of those things that we are called to don't rest on our shoulders. They are prepared by God for us to walk in them. How hard is walking? You walked from your car here. Most of you probably didn't break a sweat. We are to walk in what God has prepared. His grace and unmerited favor are not something that happened once at conversion and then go on pause until we reach glory. No, They are with us every step of the way because his purpose is that you be his workmanship. And so this very day, what God requires of you, he supplies to you. And so do you see how being God's workmanship, how having this identity, having this purpose in life is so much better than being self-dependent? It is a grand purpose fueled by God's grace and empowered by his preparation. It is amazing that God would invite us into this kind of relationship with him, is it not? And so we've seen that God's grace is amazing because it takes us, spiritually dead people, and offers us spiritual life, creates in us spiritual life. So that we can see God and know God. The wonder of living with him. And the same grace exalts us. We stood condemned. We should be cast out of God's presence. And yet where are we going to end up? On his very throne with him. With Christ. And it is amazing. Because every step between those two poles. Between the courtroom. And the throne. He is with you. You are his. You are his workmanship. And so as we transition from preaching to responding in prayer and song, there is just one obvious question that is at the forefront from reflecting on God's grace, and it is this. Is God's grace amazing to you? I'm not asking if you merely understand grace academic or academically or intellectually. 
Now, odds are, if grace isn't amazing to us, we don't actually understand it. But that aside, I'm, I'm asking if grace astonishes us. Does it leave you even slightly stunned or breathless that God would delight to show you this kind of favor? John Newton wrote an anthem to this grace that millions of people have latched onto and said, me too, I'm amazed by it too. Are you one of that number? Do you find God's grace amazing? Now, if you came in this morning and you are not a Christian, but in our time together, you have started to desire that life that grace gives and that exalted place that God bestows on those who don't earn it and that new purpose of being God's workmanship, we're going to pray for you. It might be that God is doing the miracle of opening your eyes, of of giving you new life through grace, through faith, right now. Now, just so that it doesn't surprise you later, there is a cost to accepting this grace. You will not be your own person any longer. You will be His workmanship. But if God is truly moving on your heart, you'll be okay with that. That'll be a good thing to you. And so if this is you this morning, would you please, before you leave here, talk with me, talk with one of our other members before you leave. That, that could be a little awkward, but if, if God is bringing new life into your heart, it's, you need to talk to another Christian about it so that we can pray for you, so that we can talk with you. If you are a Christian here today, we're going to pray that you and that I, because I need help here too, would be so amazed at God's grace that we would not be timid on the one hand, nor proud on the other. Rather, that our confidence in the grace of God would make us humble and fearless in obedience to God. You have all of God's resources at your disposal. People can't do anything compared to you, compared to what God has promised you. And so let's be humble, let's be fearless in following our God together. And then thirdly, if you came in these doors and you consider yourself a Christian, but you aren't amazed at God's grace, if it seems mechanical, habitual, intellectual only, we're going to pray that your soul would be revived. Because it could be that you used to be amazed by grace and for whatever reason, maybe trial, maybe circumstances, you're in a dry season. Conversely, it might be and I say this very carefully and soberly, it might be that you've never really been amazed by grace because you've never really experienced new life of grace. It is possible, and I say this because I've experienced it, it is possible to think we are spiritually alive when we are actually have no spiritual pulse. If that's you, run to Jesus. He loves to give favor. He loves to bring the dead to life. And so let's pray now. We're going to offer any prayers of confession or petition for our church or the world at large. I've given three uh, categories there, non-Christians, Christians, Christians, and uh, 
people who think they're Christians but are realizing I'm not amazed by God's grace. I'll pray for that last group. If someone else would pray for one of the others and then anything else that you would desire to pray to your Father because he shows favor upon you. So I'll begin and then let us pray. Lord, we thank you for grace. We thank you that you sent Jesus that he came to planet earth, that he died upon a cross, that he rose from the dead, and in so doing, has offered us grace, favor. Lord, I pray that we as people would have eyes to see this grace and that we would be amazed by it. This is what makes us a Christian, Lord that we have seen and tasted of your grace and we are uh, so consumed by it that we delight in knowing you more than anything else. And Lord, I do pray for um, any friend who's come in here today and they would say, you know, perhaps I've always considered myself a Christian. Perhaps I've been going to church a long, long time and what I realize is is that I have no taste for God. I have no amazement at grace. Lord, I pray that this person would not feel primarily condemned, but would feel invited to the table, would feel an invitation from you to come to a banquet of grace, to believe in this Savior, to trust in Him, lean on Him, to be amazed by what He has done for them personally. And Lord, would you work a miracle of new life here today for anyone in this position, we pray.